This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. Uh, I'm sitting here today with Jose Rivera, author of many, many plays, uh, but the one we're talking about today is Love Song Imperfect. Jose, welcome to the program. Thanks. Nice to be with you. Could you tell us what some of your earliest experiences of theater were? Oh, wow. Um, well, my first experience with theater, I was 12 years old. And my uh, elementary school was hosting a traveling theater production of Rumpelstiltskin. And I went to see it and I just loved it. And, um, you know, it was the first time I ever felt like part of something big, mm-hmm. you know, because I was a kid, grew up on television. And it's like a one on one relationship between you and the TV set. And here being in the, in the big auditorium at school with all my classmates and all of us laughing at the same time. And, you know, uh, it was a real eye opener. I, I just loved it. I loved the energy. I never forgot it. Um, and so that was my first actual theater experience. Um, and then, you know, I did, I, I was lucky enough to have a wonderful uh, uh, high school, public high school. And um, I was turned on to Tennessee Williams uh, by my drama teacher. And we also, like, we did the Crucible, like everyone does the Crucible. Um, but, yeah, I mean, reading Tennessee Williams really was like a life-changing event because I just thought I'd never read anything so beautiful before. And um, it was the Glass Menagerie. And so I just wanted to do that. I wanted to do something like that. You know, went to college, wrote and directed four plays while I was, a, a, um, you know, a, undergrad, and then went right to New York. Uh, and then I saw in, I think it was 1979, the closing night performance of uh, Barry Child mm. um, with, with that amazing cast. And it had just won the Pulitzer Prize. And I just thought, holy shit, this is, <laughs> this is the best, you know, <laughs> theater is the best. That was, those are my earliest experiences. That's so funny you mention it. That the one-two punch of Tennessee Williams and Sh- Sam Shepard was exactly what got me as well. So no shit. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah. Glass Menagerie and, and Streetcar as well. And then uh-huh. I, I like Barry Child a lot. For me, True West was the one that really oh yeah got, got me. But yeah, that's amazing. Um, did you did you figure out in high school that you wanted to be a playwright, or was that in college, or when when did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I started writing plays very early. I mean, I, I, wrote, I wrote, as I said, four plays in, in high school. I mean, I just did it as something like a hobby mm-hmm. or an impulse. I didn't, wasn't imagining a career or an, even an identity, 
you know, as a writer. It's just something I, I love to do. I love hanging out with actors. I was in some several plays and I just love the, the community around playmaking, you know, the focus on a, on a goal and having a group of people doing that thing. And so, yeah, I, I, uh, I really, I just love the activity. Uh, and it, it provided sort of, um, it filled some kind of hole in my identity in my life, I think, you know. Um, I had been an athlete in high school and then I, I got asthma and, and my doctor said, you, you can't run track anymore. And so instead of joining the track team, which I couldn't do, I auditioned for a play and, and got, got a role. And that hooked me ever since. Uh, I never went back to track. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I just uh, yeah, I guess I needed to be part of a team. And, and being a, a team member in a playmaking activity was just, it was the best. I, I just loved it. Yeah. You, you mentioned that a couple of times now, the, the idea of kind of being part of something bigger than yourself. And I know you've written for TV quite a, quite a lot. Do you feel like when you're writing on a TV show, it feels like you're in a team in a similar way? Or does it feel kind of, does it not quite scratch that itch? Yeah. Yeah. I, I've had, I've had, Various experiences. Most of them are, I've written pilots, uh, adapted books for various companies, um, and, and nearly all the pilots never went anywhere. So that was that was an isolated experience. I, I dealt with executives, but I didn't deal with any other creative people. You know, I did produce a TV series early on called Erie, Indiana. And so I co-created that show and then was one of the producers. And that, that, felt, that felt like a community. We were, it was a big um, crew, uh, you know, multi-million dollar um, budget. It was for ABC and it was on prime time. So there was a lot behind it. Um, but I just, I really liked being on set with, with that show. Um, and, and in some ways it mimicked the theater experience because, you know, uh, I, I was part of the audition, auditioning process. Um, you know, I did all, all the rewriting. And so it, it, it had a, a facsimile of, of theater. It wasn't the same thing because writing for an, NB, for an NBC series or ABC series in this case, it just wasn't the same as writing for the ensemble studio theater, say. Mm-hmm. And you, you've also written uh, screenplays, um, but but you always keep coming back to to plays. What do you what do you think it is about that? I mean, you know, I have a lot of reasons why I think plays are the best type of you know literature, the best type of art you could possibly be making. But I'm interested to hear what for you is the draw that keeps you coming back to this sort of strange uh, practice of writing plays? Yeah, I think for me, I mean, it is the only way I know to really uh, explore my dreams and my demons and, and my hopes. Uh, it is an intensely personal endeavor for me. So almost everything I've written for the theater has a deep connection to my life or the life of people I love and know well. Whereas for movies, you know, I have to do a ton of research 
you know, for movies. I did a ton of research for like on the road, you know, reading Kerouac and learning about the beat generation and, and tons of research for the motorcycle diaries and, and the 33 and all these films that I've been hired to do. Um, and even for that, I had to find a personal way into the stories, you know, in order to make them work for me. But for theater, I don't, you know, I don't do much research. A theater is an impulse, um, comes easily in a way. Uh, not easily, that's a bad word. It sounds like I don't do work. Uh, it comes <laughs> organically and naturally to me. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's, it's what I want to leave behind. Mm-hmm. You know, once, once I pass away, I want to leave that work behind. I mean, it's, it's really important to me. Um, as opposed to leaving behind episodes of, you know, Erie, Indiana, things like that. Sure. You mentioned Motorcycle Diaries, which is a movie that I really love. I think I think it's a great movie, and I've read the book it's based on. And you know, I, I it's it's a good book too. But I feel like you really um, found a way to to excavate the story in that and kind of make it feel much more emotional. I think than the book does, at least for me. Um, what was your sort of personal connection to that story? You mentioned you kind of have to find a your your own way into that kind of stuff. What, what was it for that piece? A part of it is just having. You know, being my age and, um, you know, as a kid, knowing who Che Guevara was, and he, he was such a hero to Latin America, most of Latin America, not all of it. Um, and, but as a young Puerto Rican, you know, growing up in New York, he, he, was, he was a hero, um, as was the Cuban Revolution, things like that. Um, so I did, I did have a, an instant sort of connection to the historical figure. But, you know, when I read the book, and, I, and actually I adapted two books. I adapted uh, Ernesto Guevara's book, but also his, his traveling companion wrote a book. Mm. And so the movie is actually sort of like a bifocals of those two books. Um, when I read them, I just understood that, um, you know, we're talking about a coming of age story of how a young person uh, is impacted uh, or a sheltered young person is impacted by the world that they encounter for the first time. And they encounter this world at the age of like, like real sort of political awakening and consciousness. And that's, I felt I've had that experience mm-hmm. and I've traveled a good deal. And so I understood, I felt I understood Ernesto Guevara on a very uh, fundamental level uh, as, as that young person becoming enlightened by travel, mm-hmm. which I think is a lot of, not just my experience, a lot of people's experiences. It's interesting that you said sheltered. You use the word sheltered to describe Che and as as a young man because I I think I think that's a, that is totally accurate and he he was sheltered. I think a lot of people these days would use a word like privilege to describe him. I mean he's a he's a medical student. He comes from a middle class background. He's from Argentina. Um, but I feel like you using sheltered kind of part of what you're saying is that there are disadvantages in terms of becoming a person in the world and a, you know, any kind of a creative person, whether it's an artist or, you know, a revolutionary, there are disadvantages to coming from, from wealth and from access and from, you know, education. Did you think that's true? Yes. Uh, yes. I think in his case, I mean, you know, his, his father was an engineer. 
his mom was very bohemian. She was like one of the first women in her society to wear pants in public, <laughs> to smoke in public, you know, those were radical events. Um, but yeah, I think he was sheltered. I, I don't think he, he hadn't traveled very much. Uh, he knew medicine, he knew his culture, he knew his, his community really well. And he was a thinking, you know, but he hadn't been exposed to Marxism, for instance. He hadn't, he hadn't read uh, Lenin, um, that came later. And he hadn't really experienced poverty. You know, and so part of the journey is like meeting the coal, the, the miners in Chile, for instance, or the indigenous people in the Amazon, you know, the lepers in the leper colony, people who really had disadvantages, terrible disadvantages in life. And I think he didn't know he was he was privileged. That's why I think he was sheltered. He his his parents gave him whatever he needed. And I think he lived in a bubble. Mm -hmm. uh, created by class and co skin color and language. And I think all that, it, it is, it is a, he was privileged, but he didn't really know until he was on the road just exactly, you know, what he had. And then I think the political consciousness awakened in him and realized he can't be satisfied being privileged. As long as there are people, as long as there are people suffering and, and you know, in, in dire circumstances, his privilege is actually pain. It's painful. Mm -hmm. And so I think he dedicated his life to trying to sort of correct that injustice. And many people have different interpretations of how well he did that and his methods for doing that because he became more violent as he got older. Um, but I think as a young, I mean, he was 24, I believe, when he, he took the trip and wrote the diaries. As a young person of 24, he was much more idealistic than the sort of cynical warrior he became later on. Mm -hmm. There's a, a quote by Pablo Neruda where he's talking about why he joined the Communist Party. And he says, in Latin America at that time, you were either on the side of the Cadillacs or the children without shoes. <laughs> I feel like that's the sort of sentiment that I could imagine Che co-signing. Oh, completely, completely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd love to talk about this play, Love Song Imperfect. Um, wh what was your inspiration for writing this play it's it's a, a a very kind of fantastical sometimes uh you know magical sometimes very kind of nightmarish play what 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 kind of what was the seed of this yeah i really wanted to explore passionate young love uh, so the, the lovers in the play very passionate for each other but they're, they're full of obstacles um, that separate them. And in, in the case of the play, they're metaphysical obstacles, you mm -hmm. know, death and, and ghosts and afterlife and things like that are all obstacles. Um, but I really, you know, I, I had, had written, I think prior to that, I'd written a very dark play called Massacre, Sing to Your Children. Uh, and uh, I really wanted to sort of lighten it up a bit. <laughs> And, and just have a little more fun. And I just also just wanted to explore more theatricality. You know, I love the idea of this, you know, um, this tree that's on stage. I mean, when, when, we, when we did a workshop of it, you know, it was full of all kinds of things, fencing and a live violinist and the bicycle and all kinds of theatrical stuff. And I really wanted to sort of explore those, those things. There's, there's a dark sort of, uh, 
thread in, in the play that, that was uh, sort of uh, inspired by the Persian Gulf War. Uh, you know, there's a, a speech where Gopnik says, you know, we're going to take over the whole world and every, you know, all, all the um, you know, secret education camps and will be ours. And I think it was sort of a, a reaction to the, you know, the Persian Gulf War uh, and, and the Bush sort of um, doctrine of preemptive war and things like that. So in, in Love Song, you know, the United States government is so powerful, they can dictate the laws of nature mm-hmm. and cancel death. You know, but then when they cancel death, they only cancel it for Americans. And then that gives Americans the opportunity to conquer the world. And I did feel that there was a kind of conquer the world uh, mentality in, in our government for a while, especially in relation to the Middle East. So th- that coupled with the kind of absurd love story, to me, were, that's, those are the engines of the play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. This the 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 U.S. government canceling death um, ends up being maybe more of a problem than yeah. than they would think. I mean, there's a sense that uh, living without death kind of removes any capacity for meaning. Um, yeah. What what kind of brought you to that insight? Yeah, I mean, it just seems logical. I mean, I think I think part of the Kind of fun of the play is that the U.S. government is is very powerful, which is scary, but it's also like arbitrary and whimsical and doesn't think things through and doesn't, you know. So we suffer, we people suffer the consequences of of government activities, and that, that just seems obvious to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to write about it, but not in an obvious way. So you know, hence the you know the, the device of canceling death. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and the, the thing in the play too, is that the government changes its mind periodically. So it cancels death, it uncancels death. It, it, it allows ghosts and then it disallows ghosts. I mean, it's, it's just, it's all over the place. And I, I have felt for quite some time that, you know, our government has been kind of all over the place on many things and, and we go all over the place every four years, it seems. You know, we, we swing from place to place. Yeah, I think that sense, at least for me, has, has only kind of accelerated in recent years because, you know, having such a divided government where, you know, one party controls the White House, another party controls the Supreme Court. It's just like you never know. And, you, ever, you know, when you look at the morning paper, what fresh horrors are going to emerge? I know. I know. It just seems totally chaotic. I know. I know. I know. And like the Supreme Court is looking at the Clean Air Act. And the clean, you know, clean water act. It's like, oh, just leave it alone, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. This idea of wanting to write something that has a kind of political meaning to it, but not wanting it to be super explicit or literal, is is part of why you wanted to do that. That it maybe gives the play a little bit more of a of a life beyond when it was originally written. Yeah, I mean, it uh, it hasn't been widely produced at all. You know, it's still, and I still consider it a work in progress, actually. Mm-hmm. It's been published, um, but uh, I think we're still waiting for the world premiere. Um, the workshop I directed was fun, and le- I learned a great deal. But I still think the play will benefit from, like, concentrated professional, you know, attention 
uh, with a dramaturg and, you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm, and then, mm-hmm. and then an audience to finally allow me to understand what the play is doing, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so I'm still, I'm hoping for that. You know, mm-hmm. I think obviously the pandemic and all theatrical realms screwed everything up and delayed everything, you know? So, you know, I deal with regional theaters a lot and they're two years behind essentially in a programming two or three years ahead so to get a production of of love song it's going to get get one on the books is going to take years that's certainly one challenge of writing any kind of political theater is it just takes so long to get a play from the page to the stage that you know if you're writing something that's ripped from the headlines there's a good chance it'll be you know, completely irrelevant by the time it actually gets up there. Yeah, yeah, that's why I, d- I distrust political theater. I don't, I don't, um, I don't, I, I think, I think we all have a deep political consciousness as as playwrights in America. But yeah, chasing headlines is as a is folly as far as I'm concerned. I think I may have first read your work in like an anthology of new American political, play. political plays. <laughs> so it's funny to say that. <laughs> Um, yeah, do, do you do you think that's true? Like, do you not think of your your work as being political? Was it were you surprised when the editors of such an anthology contacted you? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, I have strong politics. Absolutely. But uh, I mean, I think I, I just think of, when I think of theater, I think of number one language, number two metaphor. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I that's what I um you know, that's what, what I lead with. And the politics are sort of like the, the grumbling of the angry writers somewhere deep inside that, that structure. Um, but yeah, I've, you know, very, there are very few topical references in, in any of my plays really, uh, because I find that does date a play, you know? Um, I always, always sort of like shake my head at comedies that just depend on the audience knowing the reference at that moment. Um, I think of Neil Simon, for instance, mm-hmm. you know? and, and so that that gets dated really, really fast for me. Um, but you know, some writers like Tony Kushner, for instance, has such a strong uh, dramatic and poetic sense that he can take current events and make them feel timeless which is i think the ultimate goal you know uh i think i don't know if my plays my plays aren't as overtly political as tony's so i disguise that a little bit but um you know my hope is that they last you know a a long while Mm -hmm. yeah it's funny when you mentioned that 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 idea of plays not having explicit references I'm, i'm thinking about glass menagerie and that great opening monologue where you know all we get to to set the scene is he says you know it, it was the 30s in spain there was revolution and it's like okay great yeah. we're there yeah. um yeah. and you know that's like just a couple of i think that play premiered in like 1944 or something like that so it's like right. saying it, it, it was 10 years ago you know yeah but that 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 um that gives it a sense of timelessness that the re- the the sort of specific historical references are so light in that play yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are the, I mean, there are references to like brands and yeah. that, but I, I think, I think the danger is when you, um, when your comedy depends 
mm-hmm. on that, then I think that's that's a little little dangerous. Do you ever write? I'm, I mean, I, I've read a lot of your plays. I haven't read all of your plays. Do you have you ever written a play that was sort of intended to be primarily a comedy? I think all of your plays have <laughs> elements of humor in them. But do you think in yeah. terms of comedy, tragedy, those kind of? Yeah, I ooh, I would never call any of my plays a comedy. I just and I would never set out to write a comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just terrifies me. Mm-hmm. Um, I like humor and I love humor. And as I said, many occasions in the past, I'm a whore for comedy, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, references Salvador Dali make me hot. It's full of, you know, very funny moments. Um, But this play too, I mean, Love Song Imperfect also has a lot of, you know, great jokes in in addition to profound meditations on metaphysics. (laughs) Yeah. 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 The jokes are accidents, you know, Uh, they, they like, they come, Oh good. That one, that one's funny. Um, but they're not, um, I'm not seeking, I'm not seeking that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, as I think a comedian would. Um, and I've written, actually, I, I, for a very brief time, I worked on a sitcom, you know, in LA and the pressure of three jokes a page is, is excruciating. Mm-hmm. I hated it. Um, even though I liked the show I was working on, um, but no, I, I wouldn't call myself a comic writer at all. Mm-hmm. There are some great comic writers and I revere them. And I'm like, how the hell do you do that? <laughs> Have you ever written a line in a play that you didn't realize was a joke until the audience laughed at it? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, several times. I mean, there's a, there's a line in Marisol where the angel asks her, uh, Marisol, what's your favorite food? And she says, oh, arroz con gandules, yum. I just thought that was like the truth of her life. It gets a big laugh, especially in the Latin audience. Mm-hmm. You know, they hear that reference and it just bursts out laughing. I'm like, oh, okay, that's, that's funny, you know? Um, I mean, sometimes I know I'm going for a laugh. Like there's the line in uh, Bolero so Disenchanted when a, a guy says something like, you know, the more religious a woman is the more she likes it and the rougher she wants it something like that mm-hmm. you know uh and i when that was performed in puerto rico holy shit got the biggest laugh <laughs> um and shock like how dare you say something like that do you find that the same moments work in a, a sort of broadly multicultural audience versus an audience that's like at a specifically latino institution yeah, I mean, I think, I think, like going back to that Arroz con Gandulas line, when we did the play in Hartford, Connecticut, you know, Hartford stage, nobody laughed. Nobody laughed. And so I. <laughs> there are a lot of Latinos in Hartford. Something's wrong with their I, marketing department. <laughs> they're, they're not subscribers, or at least they weren't, you know, 12 years ago, 15 yeah. years ago. Um, so, but things have changed, thankfully. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I don't, I never really care or am conscious of an audience when I write. Mm-hmm. I just write, you know, for my own satisfaction. Um, but I have been aware that, yeah, different audiences react to different things. Um, early in my career, I used to sit in the back of the house looking around the audience and predicting who was going to leave at intermission uh and i was i had a pretty good batting average and you know i said oh he's leaving oh they're leaving you know um and and it just happens my work doesn't appeal to everybody yeah 
I wonder if that's why there are more and more 90 minute no intermission plays so that you don't give the audience a chance to leave. <laughs> I think that's, I think, yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. We did a uh, production of Marisol uh, at um, Lehman College in the Bronx, which was wonderful because that's where the play is set. And it had a wonderful cast. But I remember standing in the audience, standing in the lobby with the director at intermission. And this very angry old man came up to us. I don't think he knew who we were. He says, I can't believe I missed the Big Bang Theory for this shit. And stormed out of the theater. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. Yeah. <laughs> I, I could imagine how somebody who whose taste was Big Bang Theory would maybe not be your target audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, why didn't you stay home in the first place? You know? <laughs> um, you've mentioned that, the, that this play has the, this kind of central couple uh, at the center, but there's also this other character, Gopnik, who's in love with uh, Delilah, the the woman in the in the couple, and you know, sort of a, a angry rival of Venezio. Um, kind of what what? Why is that character in the play? Why is this? Why did you decide to? I mean, you know, I like the character. I think he's you know, I think there's a good there are good reasons why he's in the play. But I'd like to hear you know your yeah reasons yeah why. yeah. I love old Gopnik. Um, yeah. I mean, I I did want it to be a love triangle. Mm -hmm. and tri triangles are fascinating and make great drama unfortunately I've been in a few in my life and you know I know the drama um, so yeah God, and also, but also I, I wanted I mean Delilah and Venito are very young and they're like impulsive and they're like focused on love and this relationship and how it's working and not working and stuff. but I, I did want someone in the play to be the voice of, of the politics, because Gopnik has several speeches where he talks about the conquest of the world and all that stuff. And he also talks about mortality, like talking about the first time he understood he was going to die someday. And I just wanted somebody in the play to voice sort of a, a deeper consciousness as opposed to just the kind of fun and frivolity of like young love and and uh, all that stuff so yeah i i i really needed i needed the old doctor mm -hmm. he's he turns out to be a, a kind of sadistic character towards the end of the i don't want to spoil anything but um yeah, yeah. i was really surprised with the, the turn that that character takes yes yes once he sleeps with delilah his personality completely changes and mm -hmm. he sort of taps into his deep unknown machismo Mm -hmm. and becomes an asshole to her you know and then he changes back and he's, he's okay but yeah for a while um he lets his unrestrained macho self just come forth uh which i found really interesting i mean i I don't know why I did that, to be honest. But to me, it's interesting to have that character reveal that side of himself. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's the Delilah Gopnik thing is doomed from the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, but this really seals why, you know, she could never lo love a man like that, you know? Yeah. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of characters in plays always having to have clear objectives. And this is something that um, Sarah Rule in her essay book writes about kind of being suspicious of and um, talks about Rhea Irene Fornes saying that that's not, not, it's not true that everybody wants something all the time, only Americans and criminals. Um, and <laughs> uh, which is like, you know, that's why she's Fornes, right? Um, and um, 
one of the things that I think your play is about is how is characters having a very clear want, but then when they get what they think they want, it doesn't make them any happier. And in some ways it, you know, transforms them into like in, in Gopnik's case, into this sort of monstrous version of themselves. Um, was that, I don't know, was that something that you had in mind, this idea of the objective as the sort of like, uh, you know, linchpin of, of drama in a certain like Stanislavski descended tradition? Partly, I mean, I think my feeling was that um, the objective a character has in a play, especially in that particular play, is only a signpost to a deeper objective that they may not even know how to voice. Mm -hmm. They actually want something else than the thing that they say they want, which I find to be true of people in general. People say, oh, I want, want security or I want a house in the suburbs or whatever. Whereas they really, what they really want is something else. They want, they want their dad to say, You're, I'm proud of you. You know, they, they want other things. And so the characters in this play, especially yeah, Gopnik gets what he th thought he wants but it's not what he really wants. He wants her respect and he doesn't get it. And then he has to change again in order to get it. Mm -hmm. You know, he wants her, she wants him to release her of his mm -hmm. love. And that's pretty clear. And he, she gets what she wants. And then she, when, she go, when she dies, goes into the afterlife, she wants connection with Venezio. So people's objectives change with circumstance. Um, which I find also to be true of life. You know, we constantly rewrite our script, you know, uh, depending on what reaction we're getting from the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, I mean, that I think that's totally true that, you know, people often like think they want something and they actually want something totally different. And, you know, that insight really makes this sort of demand that we hear sometimes that like I, you know i don't know what the character wants and it's like well maybe the character doesn't know what the character wants you know right. maybe yeah. i don't know what the character wants yeah um, the character wanted something on tuesday and on thursday she wanted something else you know i mean yeah 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 um do you feel like there are things that you would like to accomplish in your writing career that you haven't been able to do yet uh either artistically or in terms of you know ca career career yeah, I think in career, career, I would say uh, I'm a big fan of horror movies. <laughs> and I, I consume them like cereal. Uh -huh. um, and I really want to write one. I want to write a good one. I don't know even where to start. I don't even know like the rules of the genre. All I know is that I enjoy them. And I find, I find the ride really exhilarating and terrifying and you know, fun. So that's something in, in, in the career world I would like to do. In terms of theater, I mean, I, I bounce back and forth. Like, I just wrote a two very intimate two-character play, which is, in a way, is kind of a, a reaction to the pandemic, where people are looking for simpler, smaller work. Mm -hmm. But I really want, I want the next play to have, you know, 15 characters. You know, uh, I find a lot of my plays are reactions to the previous play you know like cloud tectonics was a reaction to marisol because marisol was so dark and violent i wanted to write a love story after that you know and so i think what i i have this idea for a new play uh that has cast of about 12 um i really want to do that uh i also want to explore i mean my my uh parents were you know 
poor immigrants from Puerto Rico. And, um, you know, my dad was a janitor and a short order cook and a, you know, um, a gardener and stuff like that. I really want to explore what I remember of working class life. Mm. And I used to work in a hotel. Uh, I worked in the laundry room, like literally cleaning sheets and towels for the maids. And so that's one of the plays I do want to write. I think it's going to probably call like working class triptych because I I see it in threes um, that deals with like the reality of of working class life, maybe not contemporary because I, I don't know that life today, though I can imagine, but what I really experienced and knew back back in the day. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the compromises you make, the struggles, the sacrifices, the lack of rewards, uh, either financial or emotional that, that can come with that life and, and the struggle for dignity in the face of all that. Uh, I think that's worth exploring. Mm-hmm. That's that the working class is is uh, not often the subject of of plays in America. Um, it's, do you feel partially as part of the idea that you want to kind of fill a gap that you see there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I mean, listen, my, I love my contemporaries. God bless them, but they mostly come from middle class backgrounds, Ivy League schools, you know, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, uh, and. Um, I think I think the working class deserves a voice in the theater, like like everyone else, you know. Um, and so, I have the the good luck of having been born poor, that I know what that is like deeply, mm-hmm. in a cellular level. And so, I definitely want to want to talk about that somehow. Yeah, going back to the top of our conversation, I feel like that is something that. Tennessee Williams and Sam Shepard have in common is that they often write about, you know, working class uh, people, people who don't come from privilege or who, if they come from privilege, it, it was a, a long time ago, you know, in the case of a lot of Tennessee Williams characters. Mm-hmm. Was that something that you identified with in, in those writers, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I just, with Tennessee Williams, I just found that he could take, quote unquote, common reality and just find the poetic thread in that mm-hmm. reality and then express it in a way that never felt forced or phony. You know, uh, I mean, when, when Blanche says, uh, uh, I don't want realism, I want magic, you know, or, you know, uh, the character says, you know, the world was lit by lightning. Mm-hmm. Simple, beautiful, but you, ne- you get it, yeah. you understand it. With Sam Shepard, it was a whole other love. I just loved his violence, actually. Mm-hmm. I loved the the blood and guts and edge of his his work. You know, um, you know. I, actually, I find True West almost disappointing because it's so domestic. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. Well, unlike Barry Child, which is like we're digging up skeletons in the backyard. You know, we're, yeah, yeah. We're doing horrible things. Um, but uh, yeah, those. Those, especially some of his like obscure plays, I find really fascinating. Like the mm-hmm. Unseen Hand. I don't know if you know that play. Yeah. yeah. You no, know, they're just like where, how, what? We on peyote. I mean, where does this come from? You know. <laughs> I saw a production of Lie of the Mind maybe like five years ago, and I just left the theater being like, "Why is this play not done all the yeah. time everywhere? It's just so brilliant." 
Yeah, yeah. I saw his production. Really? He directed, yeah. How was that? It was, it was long. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was sort of like a, I don't know, like a, like a spell. Like, just like you're in this the spell of this world, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you don't want it to end. Um, yeah, I, I, I do like that play a lot. Yeah. Do you still direct your own work? Uh, you know, I directed the workshop of, of Love Song, and I've directed several short films that I wrote and directed during the pandemic. Um, no, I would like to. I would like to. Yeah. I also, I'm putting this out there. I'd like to direct anything that's good. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to just direct my own work. Um, but I, I do like directing. And I, I feel after whatever, 40 years experience in the theater, I do understand playmaking on a deeper level than I did before and and how to communicate with actors and how that's different to communicating with your designers and all that stuff so uh yeah I mean I I think there's uh, I'm surprised more playwrights don't direct their own work you know Irene did Irene Fornes um but there's this sort of you know very like prevalent uh prejudice against that in in the American theater I find so much resistance hmm. uh, whenever I propose myself as a director. That's interesting. You, like in when you're talking to artistic directors, they and you say, "I'd like to direct this play." They say, eh, "Maybe not." Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. What are the, what reasons do they get? I mean, I feel like that's not true in sort of like uh, the more kind of avant-garde tradition. But um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, just as an example, I did I proposed very recent, not very recently, recently before the pandemic to direct a play of my own. And the reason I got back was, well, you know, when Shanley does it, it's always a disaster. So we're, we're nervous about directors, playwrights who don't work. And I'm like, ooh, okay. Uh, <laughs> it's shit like that. Did, did you point out that you aren't Shanley? <laughs> I, I pointed that out and I respect Shanley to death. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, it, it's just sort of like if one person fails at it, it's we all are, te- uh, you know, we're all looked at up, upon as failures. Well, let's let's hope some gatekeepers listen to this. Jose wants to direct his own plays and he wants to write a horror movie. Make it happen. Yeah. All right, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's probably a good note to end on. Um, but thanks so much for taking uh, so much of your time to talk with me about love song imperfect and oh, you know like we ended up talking about much more as well but uh this yeah, was yeah. really fun great well it's been a real pleasure thank you